3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the home of Common Sense on the occasion of the opening of COP26, the climate conference to end all climate conferences, as you can imagine. Things aren't really going too well so far. Thousands of activists and delegates couldn't get to Glasgow yesterday thanks to a tree falling on overhead power lines somewhere near Northampton which knocked out all the trains. Apparently they've never heard of autumn in the climate change movement or indeed leaves on the line or indeed the way that trains don't run in this country whenever there's a bit of bad weather. Um, While all the private jets meanwhile have been arriving from all over the world they've generated more carbon pollution than the entire country of Scotland in a year. Indeed, the 13,000 tonnes of CO2 dwarfs the carbon footprint of most of the countries actually attending the summit. And that's for the 85 cars in the presidential motorcade from America. Really, Joe? Really? 85 cars? Did you see them all piling into the Vatican? There was barely room to park them all. 85 cars for one bloke. Surely they could have just put him in one of those pokemobiles with some, uh, you know, bulletproof glass. God's sake. All of it flown, of course, over on Air Force One. Coals, cars, cash, trees. You might as well just make up four random words. Waste, money, buy, doing. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the least sustainable leader in our lifetime, says it's one minute to midnight. In the old days, that would be when he'd be getting on his bike to head home to the wife. But since his road to Damascus conversion, it's all about saving the planet, isn't it? Let's have a look at those words. Coal. That's the thing that China keeps using to generate electricity because it's so efficient. Cars. Those are the things that ensure we get from A to B in reasonable comfort. Unless, of course, you've got an electric car, because that won't get you anywhere. Allegra Stratton doesn't even have one, and she's in charge. Cash. That's the one thing the government is determined to ensure you don't have any of. If you have got any, you would have to hand it over to them. And trees. Those are the things that stop trains from getting you from A to B, or particularly from London to Glasgow. Oh, and as if that's not ridiculous enough, Greta's here as well, telling everyone they're not doing enough to fix the climate, and it's quite a good idea to lie down on the motorway. Marvellous, isn't it? Unbelievable. It's as if I've woken up in some kind of ridiculous, you know, Rabelaisian nightmare, that somebody has just invented a world in which we're all living, but nobody's really doing what it looks like they're doing. I mean, how can you fly in a private jet to a climate conference? How can you bring 85 cars over to tell people to stop wasting energy? I mean, am I the only one that doesn't see what they're doing, or does see what they're doing? 0344 499 Up first this morning we're joined by Brendan Chilton Chilton even, uh, eminently sensible man uh, He's going to give us his take on the madness Plus I'll be asking about the latest nonsense from the French uh, Who are still threatening to blockade all sorts of ports Tell us that we can't have any electricity for the Channel Islands And meanwhile the EU of course have come out and said We shouldn't be making any threats Hello, the French have taken one of our boats hostage mate I think the threats are coming from their side Peter Hitchens is here as well with a look at the nation's finances since the budget last week and what's gone wrong with Archbishop Welby of the Church of England, which isn't much like a church at all these days. We'll be asking you about the booster and vaccine programmes as well and we'll bring you the latest from that train crash in Salisbury last night. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. You tell us and we tell everybody else. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, the world headquarters of Common Sense. It is, of course... Talk radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, there are times when I just sort of shake my head, really. You wake up, you see the front pages of the newspapers. PM, it's the last chance on climate, says the Times. Is it? So there's two narratives here. Apparently, it's the last chance, but it's never too late. That's the other thing you keep hearing. So if it's never too late, then why is this the last chance? I mean, I'm sorry. Just just explain that one for me, because if it's the last chance that we do, don't do enough, but then it's never too late after that, then it's not really the last chance, is it? Johnson to world leaders, we are one minute to midnight in The Guardian. Meanwhile, there's all sorts of protests going on, because some people don't think we're going fast enough, some people don't think we're doing it hard enough. If Glasgow fails, the whole thing fails. What's that, the government? What The whole thing being what? The G20 failed to set targets for net zero by 2050. You know, we talked about this um, referendum idea on Net Zero last week. I'm still going to bang that drum this week because I don't think anybody with any brains whatsoever is buying this cobblers. Let's talk to Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Am I the only one? I can't be, surely. I can't be the only one that's looking at all this going, really? What the hell are you doing?
1: Well, I think your your introduction there is absolutely right. Uh,
3: the irony of
1: the President of the United States, Mr. Green, uh, arriving uh, in the United Kingdom with 80 or so cars, in the in, uh, G20 of 80 or so cars. All these world leaders and business leaders jetting around the world in uh, private planes and expensive planes and then telling all of us, the ordinary punters, uh, that we've all got to go green. There's a horrific rumour of a beef tax going around, which we'll have to uh, fight <laughs> in the streets. So we can't allow that to happen. <laughs> um, but it it is just an amazing thing to behold. We're being lectured from on high uh, by people who are extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, uh, telling all of us that we need to go green, that we need to stop uh, polluting the planet, stop having cars,
3: stop going on holidays, while they can continue to enjoy the luxuries that they have. I mean, are they going to be having a plant-based uh, di- diet up in Scotland? Are they not going to be served any fish? Are they not going to be served any any meats of any kind? I mean, who knows? I'd like to see the menus, please. Well, I agree. I, I want them to eat nothing but tofu, uh, which is a horrific
1: <laughs> meal to have to eat. But for, for inflicting what they're going to inflict on all of us, I don't think they should be allowed to eat any fillet steak or any Dover sole or anything delicious ever again. No, uh, they should be forced to live off tofu and boiled rice yeah. uh, for the rest of their days. And they days. should be
3: surely they should be cycling everywhere, shouldn't they? I mean, uh, I mean, it was, I have to say it was slightly ironic yesterday that a tree falling. Uh, on the overhead wires somewhere near Northampton, which kiboshed all the trains going to Glasgow, it was quite a sort of symbolic moment, wasn't it? Well,
1: I think it was. It was. It was nature saying, "Hold on, chaps, let's not get too excited here." But of course, uh, the Twitterati. Uh, and the eco-warriors uh, have described the bad weather conditions as climate catastrophe, you know, it's stopping COP going ahead. This is a demonstration uh, that we need to save the planet. Uh, no, we're in Northern Europe and it's called autumn. Yes, uh, I mean, they've obviously, no,
3: obviously never heard of autumn, these climate change people.
1: Well, no, it would appear so. But, you know, leaves on the tracks, falling trees, it's what happens at this time of year. Uh, and one uh, particular journalist Uh, mr snow i think it's now infamous tweet dan snow uh,
3: yeah
1: yeah suggested that this was as a result of climate change well as far as i'm aware he has lived in the united kingdom for most of his life so should understand our weather cycles but this of course is all the drama it's all the excitement and it's the dramatic language that these eco people use uh, to try and force through their agenda
3: well I mean, sorry, I'm just taking a sip of my uh, very unfair trade coffee there just while I'm there. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I can't afford fair trade coffee because I'm just an ordinary working person. But, you know, but the idea as well, Allegra Stratton, right, who has admitted herself that she does not have an electric car uh, because it doesn't actually suit her at the moment because she's got to do too much driving. Um, the idea that they come out with this kind of nonsensical slogan, you know, cars, coal. Uh, trees, cash. I mean, this is a government now of sloganeering and nothing more. And the idea that Boris Johnson says this is the single most important subject. What happened to Covid? I thought Covid was the single most important subject. Now, apparently, that's been dismissed and put into the background. Well, it it was an extraordinary
1: statement. And let's just take cars out of the economy for one second. What does that mean? Taxi drivers out of a job, Uh, hospital uh, car drivers out of a job. Anyone working for Deliveroo or Uber, or those home delivery Mm. companies, out of a job. Uh, Anyone having home improvements. Most people arrive plumbers, electricians in a van uh, when they come to your house. Gone. So this is actually, I think, a really dangerous attack on working class people. People in ordinary day-to-day jobs uh, that are going around the country trying to earn a living and pay their bills and also, you know, scrape some money despite these huge tax rises we're now seeing uh, to try and treat their families at the end of the week. They're being told that their professions and their careers are no longer required. And the bigger issue here, Mike, as well, which on a much more serious note, is we are lecturing, well, not we, but our leaders are lecturing the developing world and emerging economies, telling them to go green and ditch coal when we started it 200 years ago, with the Industrial Revolution. And we're essentially denying them the opportunity to develop their own economies and to build their own industries, Um, which, of course, you know, we import most of our stuff from abroad. And one of the only reasons we've been able uh, to reduce our reliance on coal and reduce our carbon emissions is because we've decimated British industry and we now import it from around the world. So we want to not make our own stuff here and be dependent on fossil fuels, but still be dependent on goods coming from abroad. Oh, and at the same time, we're lecturing them, telling them to stop using those fossil fuels to make stuff that we want.
3: Yes. And also, not to make light of all of this terrible, terrible doom and gloom, I was watching an old George Carlin video last night, a uh, man who was one of the greatest American comedians that ever lived, hated idiots, hated all government, hated anything to do with sort of, you know, people telling you what to do and how to live. And he makes an incredibly good actual point about the fact that there's nothing wrong with the planet. It's the people that there's a problem with. And the people on this planet will probably disappear before the planet does, because they're so stupid, they'll probably end up going the same way as the dodo, because there's nothing, (laughs) really, that we can do about the planet. I mean, look at what's going on in that volcano over in... um, uh, the, the Canary Islands. Look at what's going on in Hawaii whenever there's a, uh, a an explosion of lava. Look at the way earthquakes can just decimate entire cities and kill millions of people. You know, there is nothing really that me not driving around in, in, in a diesel car and not eating anything other than plants is going to make any difference.
1: Well, I I think, you know, while while that was said in a humorous way, there is an element of truth in all of this. You know, we I think we overestimate our own importance on this planet. Uh, We occupy a teeny thin layer around the outside of the Earth and, you know, all that lava and boiling stuff in between here and Australia through the Earth. It's far bigger than any of us. Earth's temperatures have been going up and down uh, since the planet was formed. And you're right, the creatures that will see this planet die will not look like you and I. They'll be so far removed as we were from the Mm. dinosaurs in centuries to come. And we, we often imagine that we are the only species and we'll be here forever and nothing will surpass us. But we're we're tiny minute element. And so the consequences of that are we've got to be realistic about what we as humans can actually do uh, to improve the lot of the planet. And the big thing that's missed in all of this is the Earth actually needs carbon. Uh, carbon plants.
3: Yeah. Trees, eat, you know, but they, this is, but they this is, turn it into oxygen. But, Brendan, this is, <laughs> this is the other nonsensical point about all of this. Nobody really understands what net zero means because what it doesn't no. mean is zero. It doesn't mean no more emissions. It just means no more emissions unless you pay tax on them. No more emissions on regular planes to, you know, Mallorca if you're only paying 45 quid each way because that's for poor people. But it's all right, you know, if you're Chris Martin and you can go on a private jet to Dubai and perform for uh, Giorgio Marni uh, in a private uh, concert where where hundreds of models have flown in from Italy, that's OK because you've planted some trees in Sri Lanka. <laughs> well, right, you've
1: hit the nail on the head there. You know, businesses in this country, the government are telling business that we need to... Um, go to net zero. Well, what the hell does it mean? I, d- I haven't yet met one business owner uh, and I run a, quite a sizable business network yeah. that knows first of all, how to measure their carbon footprint. And secondly, how to go about reducing it. Yet you've got all these Tofts and world leaders at this uh, summit in Glasgow, telling them they're all bad for not doing it. Well, tell them how to do it. T- incentivize them to do it as well. Don't tax them out of existence. Incentivize people to do it and you might get change i think most people in this country not just in this country but around the world you know they want to see the natural world protected you know safaris are great we want to look after the animals we don't like the idea that our oceans are filthy but do we want to be in a position where we are regulating and taxing businesses and individuals to the hilt where they can no longer afford to live a good and decent standard of living. Yeah. Things like you know boiler pumps that we've uh, read about in the papers, home insulation, all these things cost <coughs> you see tens that of thousands the of pounds.
3: Did you see that story at the weekend? A family that got a £70,000 grant, I mean, God knows where they got that from, to put in a heat pump system. They had to dig up an acre of their garden, right? They need a room the size of a garage to put all the machinery in that, that heats the thing. And it doesn't work. And all the kids are wearing <laughs> coats walking around the house because it's no good. It's ridiculous. Absolutely, man. Well, how about this for peak BS, right? Prince Charles, right, telling us all uh, that we should stop spending money, stop flying around, stop travelling anywhere, stop eating meat, right? Do you know his entourage is made up of 124 staff? 124. I mean, they couldn't all get in Joe Biden's motorcade, including two personal valets, a chef, a private secretary, a typist and a bodyguard. He also travels with his own bed and his own toilet seat. I mean, are these people taking the mickey or what? Well, well, as you know, I, I, I
1: on the whole, I'm a staunch royalist, but I do think they are entering, not just Prince Charles, but the other junior members of the royal family, are entering into political territory with their ongoing commentary on this whole climate debate Uh, we have a royal family to be above uh, politics uh, in this country and around the world but we've seen prince william and prince charles and the duchess of cambridge uh, not to mention the two unmentionables that now live in america uh, (laughs) lecturing us all on uh, how we should behave
3: you can't have surely missed that she gave some money to some people to buy some coffee for themselves she she actually gave them 15 dollars to buy coffee i mean how condescending is that well should
1: be very generous of her (laughs) to do so but they they shouldn't be doing this as as members of the royal family uh yes they can champion their own private causes but lecturing people who are who are never going to have anywhere near the money and wealth and property that they have on how they should be changing their lives as you say uh, whilst going around the world with these huge entourages and planes, etc. And I think the real issue here is at the moment, you know, when when you say to people, oh, let's go green, carbon neutral, save the planet, most people look at that and go, yeah, it's a good thing. But when the costs of all this start hitting home, yeah. you know, home insulation, rising bills, uh, heat pumps, taxes on travel, taxes on meat, taxes on cars, etc., I think people in this country are actually going to say, up with this, we are not yes. going to put.
3: Yeah, That won't people... be the first thing they say, but it will be what but, they say.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They'll probably be um, much more colourful than you and I could be uh, this morning. Um, exactly right. But uh, <laughs> they won't put up with it. And all these people that are lecturing them now, I think, uh, will be called to account for the decisions they're making. Yes,
3: I couldn't agree with you more. Brenda, stay with us, because I want to touch on the French situation as well, being as you are uh, very close to uh, to the French uh, coastline down there in Kent. Uh, Brenda Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network, says to me, with absolute and utter candor, there aren't very many business leaders that he knows that give us stuff about this. Look, I don't mind saving the planet. Nobody minds saving the planet, but not at a cost of millions, trillions Gazillions of pounds. We don't have the money. It's that simple. And it is a crock of absolute nonsense that's going on up in Glasgow. And we are going to be covering it for you this week to highlight how idiotic, how hypocritical, and how useless they all are. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how the devil are you?
0: Morning. So far, so good. Yeah.
3: How's the uh, how's the weather in your neck of the woods? Because I keep being told by these people that we've had an extraordinary level of weather events lately, which was what we used to call weather. It's now weather events, apparently.
0: Well, of course, if you if you decide that there is a pattern in things, uh, then you will see everything forming part of it. As far as I know, there's no uh, there's no actual objective, uh, measurable test which connects the supposedly extreme weather events of the past few years uh, with, uh, with with climate change. And I'd be interested to see if anybody can produce anything which does so. But it's become, as with so many things to do with that subject, uh, both fashionable and pretty much compulsory to say that these things are connected. So that's what everybody now believes. Mm. Uh, the, the the extraordinary spread. Uh, of the religion of Greta Thunberg uh, is it, it's it's absolutely amazing. Uh, it's now I think captured almost every part of the media, all parts of the education system, everywhere else. And my own view is always when confronted with a, any kind of unanimous opinion, uh, to wonder whether it oughtn't to be challenged. But it is, it, it is extraordinary how difficult it is to do so. At the moment you see you're, you you are indeed, I'm sure there are people watching this who are already. Uh, i to ring you up and accuse me of being a climate change. Oh,
3: of tonight. course. Of course. It's definitely. a
0: phrase deliberately chosen, by the way, as a smear, because it was originally used quite properly against people who denied the mass murder of European Jews by Hitler. Yes. Uh, Holocaust deniers. Right. Uh, so uh, that is that is what they do. They deny that it happened. Uh, and and this the use of this phrase is a deliberate attempt to set up in the mind of the listener an idea that anybody who is at all doubtful about this is an evil person. Uh, not just a wrong person, but an evil person, a bad person who, who, who is, for, for wicked reasons, denying a, a proven truth. And I'm not, I, I don't want to argue about this here, but I, it's a very unpleasant uh, way of proceeding. And whenever right. I, yeah, I, 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 another thing I notice is whenever anybody who is opposing you in an argument resorts to t- tactics of this kind, it's usually a sign that they're not entirely sure of their own case.
3: No, that's absolutely right, because I was watching yesterday evening, because I can't be bothered getting up early enough to watch it in the morning, Andrew Marr's interview with, with Greta Thunberg, St. Greta, as people, some people would like to call her, and it was possibly the most ludicrously soft interview I think I've ever seen. There were no... Que- there was, you know, the narrative was not questioned. My question to everybody is, what exactly is net zero? What is the point of attaining it? And what will it actually achieve for the rest of the world? Because I fear the answer to all of those things is going to be very disappointing for the people who are trying to push it. Yes, I didn't
0: see it. The question I would persistently ask her over and over again is, why does she spend more time in, in China uh, 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 trying to explain to the Chinese government mm. that its enormous coal burning program is bad? And to see what happens when she does so. I, she could try, but she just thinks quite reasonably that China is a repressive police state which murders its own people. In Tiananmen Square, then she might try India, which is a, which is a democracy, and see how she gets on there. Mm. Uh, or indeed Australia, which is uh, again a heavy producer of, of coal uh, and not entirely sign up to this project. It's here to we have this extraordinary spectacle of, of a British government and several European governments shutting down the, the use of coal, and in the case of Germany, shutting down the use of nuclear power—an act close to insanity, in my view. Uh, while the rest of the world, uh, particularly the biggest industrial, biggest growing industrial power, of China, and the biggest established industrial power, of the United States, continue to use coal uh, and to expand nuclear power, mm. uh, which makes all our sacrifices meaningless. Well, quite. But uh, if, 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 if you want a meaningless sacrifice, then it seems to me that's fine by me. If you want to make meaningless, meaningless sacrifices in your own life, of your own comfort and, and safety and security and prosperity then go ahead and do it become a hermit. Go walking around the country wearing a loincloth, but don't make me do it Uh, if, if, if all it is is a futile gesture. And it's the futile gestures that irritate me.
3: Yes, well, that's the same with me. I mean, it seems to me that the Boris Johnson administration has now finally reached peak nonsensical uh, behaviour because this is actually what they're all about. You know, having a big meeting at which they're going to produce apparently more um, carbon than the whole of Scotland does in an entire year, thanks to all of the various jets that are flying in and out and all the various uh, cars. I mean, the idea that Joe Biden is flying in on Air Force One with 85 cars in his motorcade to tell everybody to stop wasting energy seems to not really be in any way ironic to anyone else apart from you and I.
0: The car issue is fascinating, as is the aircraft issue. Now, y- you may know I'm a I'm actually a very very strong advocate of uh, of railways, yes. above roads uh, because they are immensely more efficient. And I've been this has nothing to do, as far as i can say, with climate change. It's a general benefit uh, to the quality of the air, to the reduction of noise, uh, indeed to the beauty of the countryside and mm-hmm. the, the the pleasantness of our cities. And I've ha- had this opinion for many many years, long before. Uh, global heating was invented as a crisis. And and I stick to it. But the, here we have a government which claims to be absolutely frenziedly committed to a green target, uh, which has just frozen fuel duty again. It's frozen fuel duty for the perfectly successful reason. If it actually let fuel duty rise to, to the level it ought to have risen to, given inflation, then there would probably be riots mm. in the streets mm. because so many people depend on their cars to get around because this government and governments for many years before it has designed this country around the car. If you want to get around this country now, if you don't go by car, first of all, it'll be very difficult, and secondly, it'll be very expensive. Same goes for aircraft. And it's incredibly expensive to travel abroad by train, as Greta Thunberg quite rightly does. But it's incredibly cheap to do it by by air. This is also because of the tax structure, followed by the government, which claims to be green. If you want to be practically green, as I believe I am, then you should encourage the use of, of trains and trams and bicycles, and discourage the use of cars and aeroplanes, except where absolutely necessary. Uh, and by creating, or, or if you've
3: got your own, obviously,
0: well, you, you, you have to create an infrastructure, as they do, for instance, in Switzerland. We really don't need a car, uh, but they, we don't. We we or or, or or do what the Dutch have done and create a, a, a roads where it's safe to ride a bicycle. And this great frenzy. I constantly get. I was filmed by Jeremy Vine last week riding my bicycle without a helmet, and was, <laughs> was pelted with, with abuse for hours. Why don't you wear a helmet? Because it, uh, Let's not argue about it all now, but I don't right. think it's it, it's a valuable thing to do. But in, well, it's entirely in, up in, to in, you, in isn't
3: it? Isn't it up to you if you want to wear a helmet?
0: It, it is up to me at the moment, yes. So in, in Australia and New Zealand, parts of Australia and New Zealand, it's compulsory, and as a result, bicycle use has fallen with, with terrible effects on public health. But here's the point. In the Netherlands, where, where bicycle use is incredibly widespread, hardly anybody wears a helmet for the simple reason the main danger to cyclists is not by, by going around without a polystyrene bowl, on your, a styrofoam bowl on your head. The main danger to cyclists is by being hit by a car. Yeah. Uh, if that happens, then I promise you, having a styrofoam bowl on your head isn't going to do you much good. Uh, but people aren't hit by cars in, in the Netherlands because they have a sensible structure which allows people, including children, to bicycle safely around towns and around the countryside. You can't do that here. And and this is a government which claims to be green. It could take these steps to change the country for the better. Fifty years ago, the Netherlands was just like Britain. The the cyclists lived in terror of cars and the the, the car ruled and they changed it. If they took these steps, they would actually do some good. As it is, they just follow...
3: Mm dogmas right but it's, green, but it's green but uh, it's green on paper only isn't it because as rod little pointed out last week in his column um the beaches of our country are pretty well filled with sewage oh. in some parts and because we haven't got the wherewithal to enforce regulations on water companies who well, would we prefer... well no we haven't have because they the they prefer to pay the fine because it's cheaper than changing the system so they keep well, it doing it
0: But this is, again, why it seems to me that intelligent conservatives should never have been in favor of privatization. The the water companies have been one of the most classic examples of the extraction of wealth from a major resource Mm. uh, without any particular responsibility towards the country. When we still had nationalized or, or, as it was, uh, quasi-state run water, you could have... uh, but had some influence over their behavior. And as soon as they were privatized, their entire, the entire reason for their existence was to make money for their shareholders, which is what private companies do. So, sure, the calculation is there. We'll pay the fines and, 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 and spread sewage on every yeah. available nearby surface. And, and that's fine by us. What are you worried about? The people who are doing this don't live anywhere near the sewage. They no. They do.
3: And that's the terrible, that's the terrible thing. I mean, that awful footage of the pipe that was somewhere, I think, in, in uh, going out into the, uh, the, the southern part of the, uh, of the coast of, of the UK uh, for 49 hours. I mean, it just beggars belief.
0: Well, it, it, I, I wish it did. You see what they do with the rivers as well. It's, yeah. it, it, they're constantly being pulled up for it, but they, there's no there's no incentive for them to do it. And they're they're, they're also surprisingly interested in fixing leaks. Whoever you find a major leak, oh my
3: god, yeah, bring them up and
0: ask them. They, they, they're, 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 nothing will happen because they, they in their calculations this really isn't worth the bother. If they were if, if they were still publicly owned, I don't think this would happen. Mm. It's the same with the railways yeah. and a number of other things. It was a mistake to privatise them, and I'm sick and tired of people who claim to be conservatives defending this. And the the members of Parliament who voted not to to strengthen regulations against sewage, I think, made fools of themselves. Mm. It it really is necessary for some things to be run for the public good rather than for for private good, And, and water and railways are two of them.
3: And I think energy perhaps in general is because of all the ridiculous notions that we now have to buy into and we have to follow and swallow. That well, We've got a cap on the prices, but it doesn't actually seem to stop the price from going up. So it's not really a cap, is it?
0: I think there is a strong case for uh, for, for nationalised energy, and I'd, I've never seen any particular advantage to me or any other consumer I right know in, in having it any other way. If you, you, you might get some reductions by this ridiculous ability to switch from place to place, but they are at last.
3: No. And as we
0: see, the companies which offer them, uh, when trouble comes, go belly up and uh, hand you over to somebody else. It's not a long-term reduction. No. If, if you wanted a long-term reduction in the cost of energy, you would have a, a serious uh, national energy corporation, which, for instance, would by now have, have developed uh, a proper uh, fleet of modern nuclear power stations, which I think this country badly needs to keep itself free from pressure from both Middle Eastern tyrants and from Vladimir Putin. Mm. You you need these things, but unless you've got a serious national direction, it won't happen. Again, we did have a very, very good nuclear power uh, industry and a a body of knowledge and of, of skilled people who knew how to how to handle it. and that's all been dispersed since privatisation, just as a huge number of the best railway engineers were dispersed on privatisation of the railways.
3: Yes, quite. Now, you and I haven't, a, haven't had a chance to speak about the budget because I, I missed you last week yes. when I was on breakfast. But, I mean, I dare say you, like me, might have been asking the question last Wednesday afternoon. Well, if we'd known exactly how much this was going to cost, we might not have been quite so keen on locking everybody away.
0: Well, again, it, 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 as, as with all budgets, people look at it and, they, and the newspapers come up with the figures and it looks pretty terrifying. But it, it, it's, it's when these new taxes actually bite and when the inflation mm. actually bites in people's lives, generally in the dismal months, March and April, uh, that people will really feel the pain. So far, I think uh, we're still in the fool's paradise of imagining that, that all those months of shutting down the economy were cost free. Mm. And I, I I just have to, again, say, because as you know, my chief pleasure in life as I grow older and older, <laughs> I told you so. Uh, there was going, there was, I said there would be more and higher taxes. Uh, I, and I said there would be inflation and the, these things have duly arrived. It was not very difficult to predict it. And they're going to be colossal. And the damage that these things will do to the, the, the health service, uh, which everybody thought they were, or were told they were saving, mm. will be, of course, considerable. Because every time there's serious inflation, the, the health service becomes less able to pay for itself uh, and the, uh, uh, the, the the more that taxes go up the the, the more the most pressure there is uh, on the exchequer and actually the less money there is to go around yeah. it just it just isn 't going to be good for any of the things people claim they would they would take taking all those sacrifices for
3: no I fear that 's true um, your main piece this week was about um, Archbishop Welby um, yeah. and, uh, and and his inability or his unwillingness, if you like, to uh, uh, to admit to something. Tell us about that. Well,
0: it's a preoccupation of mine. It's uh, it, I, I think that sometimes in one's life, a case comes in front of you, which you have to do something about. Uh, I have for many years been an admirer of the late Bishop George Bell of Chichester. Not, I hasten to say, to be in any way confused with the disgusting uh, Bishop Peter Bull, of, uh, a convicted paedophile, George Bell. Uh, was a, was a, a a man really of the, of the Edwardian age who lived into modern times, uh, tremendously brave, uh, supporter of the uh, of German anti Nazis in the German Church before the war, uh, also a champion of the of the oppressed in a, in, a, in a really genuinely courageous way, and also the man who opposed, which I think was essential for our national. Uh, our national pride and, uh, and, and our, our national conscience mm. opposed the, the bombing of German civilians during the Second World War, uh, which cost him the Archbishop of Canterbury, which he would otherwise have got. He was a very brilliant and, uh, and a much loved man. And a few years ago, a, a, an accusation was made against him uh, that he had uh, that he uh, sexually abused a girl. The problem with the accusation was it was made something in the region of sixty years after the events. Uh, Accused, alleged. Uh, he wasn't around to contest it. Uh, the uh, the accusation was pretty much immediately accepted as true by the Church of England, which then made a public payment uh, to the complainant. I suspect the complainant was actually abused by somebody, by the way, but not not by George mm-hmm. Bell. And the, the I was part of a group which which protested against this because we felt there'd be no proper examination of the case and no no presumption of innocence. And eventually, the, the brilliant QC Alex Carlisle, Lord Carlisle, Uh, wrote a report on it, which demolished the case against him. But Justin Welby, who'd been deeply involved in this case, uh, has always been very unwilling to admit that he was totally wrong and continues to insist that what he calls a significant cloud hangs over George Bell just because the accusation was made. Now, a point I made on Sunday was even even the Soviet Union, even the Kremlin, Eventually rehabilitated all the people it smeared in show trials in the nineteen thirties. Uh, all England needs to do is to say yes, we were totally wrong. We had no case for this, but he won't do it. And now it turns out, and this is completely fascinating. As you show, this is what the, the our sister paper, the the the, the, the Daily Mail, and you see this.
3: Yeah, uh, just yeah, just move it slightly closer to your face. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, it, it's an extraordinary story about how, how Justin Welby, when he was Dean of of Liverpool Cathedral. Resisted the claims of the man who alleged that he was being uh, was being abused uh, by a paedophile priest. Now, this 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 priest actually already had a conviction for indecent assault, uh, but Justin Welby, rather than listening to him, he, uh, rather than listening to the complainant, uh, eventually barred him from the cathedral because he, he, he said he was being streperous. No doubt the man did get quite angry. But the fact is that that he, he, Justin Welby is now Archbishop of Canterbury. And the lawyers involved in these several cases against this person say that his, his actions were, well, how should I put it, inadequate. And the fascinating thing about this is although the Daily Mail has, has published it, and although it touches on the behavior of the, uh, of, of the, the chief priest of the Church of England, it has very little publicity. It seems to me that with a, having made a mistake of that, nature, which I think it sounds an a this mistake, uh, that Justin Welby doesn't really have the position to sit in judgment on other people. No.
3: But like uh, a lot of he, people... He, he,
0: can't, he can't pose as a righteous judge if he, if, if he did that. And I think that he, it, he should, in, in all humility, he should... he should. One of the things he should do is to admit his own human failings and, and, and stop claiming that a cloud hangs over the reputation of a man who, I have to say, is almost immeasurably greater than Justin Welby ever was or ever will be. Yes.
3: But again, um, his position, like many positions now in in, in Britain, is is one of uh, sort of protecting people from him making any kind of judgment which might be considered to be, you know, unwise or possibly slightly unwoke. You know, and he's more interested in how uh, people think he's doing than he actually is. And he doesn't seem to be um, running the Church of England as if it's a church at all.
0: Well, I think the Church of England has many, many problems, and we, if the, but if the problem, of course, is the, the, its biggest problem of all is that most people don't care whether it lives or dies and don't ever darken its doors, so we would, we would probably get many of your listeners to switch off if we went into a detailed discussion <laughs> of it. I just feel that in this case, here is a very important figure in public life who needs to make uh, a proper restitution to somebody who was wronged. And will not do so. And I feel that uh, under the circumstances, when it's, it's now shown that he himself has, has, has performed less than perfectly, uh, he, he he should be under even more pressure to, to make this act of restitution. And I, I would say very much that this is this is something which, as a leader of the Christian Church, it is his absolute duty to do. And so I, every chance that I get, I make this point. Yeah. I have no personal stake in this. I'm not related to George Bell. It's no to do with. With me, I just feel very strongly that injustice was done to a to a great and good man, and it should be put right. Uh, it, it's my Dreyfus case. I mean, it, 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 uh, most journalists eventually end up finding some some case in which they feel that injustice has been done, and they'll pursue it till it's put right. And this may not be very big to most people, but it's big to me, and I think it's important. And here it is. I say it again, Archbishop Welby: the time has come uh, to actually admit that you made a mistake here and fully restore and rehabilitate the reputation of, of the great Bishop George Bell of Chichester. Yeah. As I say, much, much greater uh, leader of the Church of England, than, than than you are.
3: Yes, well, I think a very good point, very well made, Peter. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed, Peter Hitchens. There, uh, with his uh, take on the events of the week, uh, his column at the weekend, of course, and the nonsensical nature uh, of this climate crisis that we are currently supposedly in the middle of. I'm mean, looking out uh, at a very beautiful day uh, here in London, according to uh, one of our earlier guests, Christian Walmart. It's a bit windy. Mid morning with Mike Gray, Talk Radio. Let's now, though, talk uh, to Dr. Nick Mann, London GP and NHS osteopath, because uh, today is the day as well uh, where they're offering all sorts of walk-in centres for people to go and get booster jabs. Uh, All NHS COVID testing sites will start closing early, they say, uh, from Monday. I don't know what that's all about. Let's find out. Uh, Nick, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. So um, they're still sort of determined to try and uh, um, vaccinate as many kids as they possibly can. I'm told they're ramping up that now that uh, schools have gone back from uh, from half term. Uh, they're trying to encourage lots of people to have booster jabs. It's still a bit of a confusing message as to who should be getting
2: them and when, isn't it? Well, we need to get as high a percentage of the population vaccinated as possible. There's no point in having uh, three quarters of the population vaccinated and extremely high uh, case rates uh, at the same time. Um, we uh, Initially, it's uh, the over 50s getting boosters um, after six months, after the initial two doses. So you, so you can't just get,
3: get them if you're over 50. It has to be
2: after six months, right? It should be after six months, but they are reducing, we are reducing the interval to about five months um, in order to get as many people covered as possible. And what's so, the dif-
3: what's the difference in doing that? Why is suddenly five months okay when it wasn't before?
2: Um, it's, I mean, to a degree, it's slightly arbitrary, but the it- um, the immunity does wane it doesn't wane massively maybe 20 uh 20 percentage points it wanes after about six months and the difference between five and six months is not going to be that great the the main message really is that the boosters really do work they're much better uh, having you're much better to have a booster than relying on natural infection to provide short-term immunity right. I've had a couple of people tell me that because the booster is a
3: different um, a manufacturer, I think it's Pfizer for most of them, isn't it, um, that they had a bad reaction to it, but not to, for the previous two uh, injections they got from AstraZeneca.
2: I've not seen um, evidence of those sort of signals translating into real findings. Um, it's quite well, I'm just common. telling you what friends of mine have told me. Sure. Um, and... A lot of people do rely on anecdotal reports, which is why there was... Well, I don't think um... they're lying to me. Do you? No, absolutely not. But people's individual experiences don't necessarily represent the uh, mass effect on the population. No, I'm
3: just asking you why that would be, though. Is it the fact that it's a different
2: uh, um, manufacturer? Is that, is that the issue? It's often the case with the third dose of vaccine, when you have uh, already got uh, a good memory, uh, immune memory, that the third dose produces a higher immune response. So you feel that more. It's the same with things like tetanus. Often the, uh, the third dose will give you a bigger immune response. And all that means is you're reacting better to the vaccine. It's not a, it's not a harm. It's just a temporary uh, discomfort.
3: No, sure. But I mean, obviously, it's good to tell people that that could happen to them, because if you don't, my experience of telling people about vaccinations, if the more more information you give them, the more likely they are uh, to actually go and do it.
2: Yes, agreed. Um, Although there's been a lot of mixed information about the harms of the vaccine, which are um, which are really untrue. The vaccines are very clearly safe um, by all the well, they're safe for the vast majority of
3: people, but there are people who have suffered as a result of getting them, haven't they? And that's the thing that I mean about the government never really talks about it. Instead of just admitting that that's the case, but it's a very very unlikely situation to affect you, uh, they kind of try and
2: pretend it's not happening. I agree. I think the government messaging has been extri- has been appalling. Um, we know, for instance, small, very, very rare cases of myocarditis um, and other side effects from the Pfizer vaccine and very, very, very small rates of uh, central venous sinus thrombosis, you know, which potentially are severe yes. side effects, but they're extremely rare and far, far more rare than those effects, both of those effects yes. from having the actual infection from COVID itself.
3: Yes, but so for example as a parent i would want a bit more information on who it is that is affected by those kinds of uh, incidents and if myocarditis is
2: a thing are certain people more at risk than others um the myocarditis with pfizer seems to affect younger people but generally speaking and uh, well by and large not generally speaking by and large it's a much milder Uh, form of myocarditis or pericarditis and responds to time and uh, simple anti-inflammatory treatment whereas the myocarditis that we see from Covid is extremely serious and myocarditis can be a lifelong problem uh, once it hits the heart but we're not seeing those long-term problems with the vaccine we are seeing them with the Covid infection. It's important yeah. to make that distinction.
3: But that still doesn't really answer my question. Are there certain children who are more likely to suffer from getting the vaccination than others? Because that's the kind of information I think that parents would like to have.
2: Um As far as I know, there aren't particular subgroups who are more likely to suffer more severe side effects from the vaccine. It's it's a sort of population effect we're looking at.
3: Uh Let's talk a bit about what you said earlier. You said rising infection rates. There are rising infection rates, but they're still pretty low. Are they not uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths?
2: Well, they're lower than they would be if we hadn't had the vaccination, but hospitalizations and deaths have been rising. I mean, um, and this, this is what I feel has been roundly ignored by the government. We are seeing that, you know, at current rates, we're seeing 50, uh, up to 50,000 people in a year dying from covid and this is now considered acceptable and isn't commented on by the government that's five times the rate of deaths from breast cancer in this country and we are seemingly saying that's normal well it's not normal
3: but lots of people die of lots of things don't they i mean 1600 people die every single day but we don't get a list of what they're dying of but what we do get a list of is how many people have died of covid but where the deaths
2: are preventable we seek to prevent them but What's are they very clear at What's clear at the moment is that the government aren't seeking to prevent these deaths. They are letting it run through the community and assume it they are making that presumption that 50,000 deaths from COVID over the next 12 months is acceptable. Is that your prediction? Is that your prediction? Well, it's based on the rates of sort of 150 to 200 deaths a day, uh, which hasn't really changed over the last month. Uh, if anything, it's been rising. So, well, it, um, it, if it goes backwards and forwards, isn't it? I mean, that's it's somewhere between 100 and 200.
3: And, and, and what well, again? I would I would welcome more information on who it is that's dying. Is it is it still older people who are suffering from other comorbidities?
2: Is it over, uh, overweight people? Who is it? It's largely the unvaccinated who are dying. Um, We also have a problem particularly with unvaccinated pregnant women who need who very much need to be vaccinated. And for some reason, they have been uh, told at various stages that the, uh, the vaccine shouldn't be taken in pregnancy, whereas it certainly should. Well, that's
3: certainly what they were told at the beginning. And that was the advice from doctors as well. But then that changed about two months ago, didn't it?
2: Uh, yes, it did, and that. So it was, wasn't just the know, government;
3: uh, it was the doctors that were saying, "Don't do it."
2: Well, it was government advice which doctors followed, and that was based on the sort of early precautionary principle. Well, why would go- and, why would doctors follow government advice about medical matters? Uh, because we do. The government ultimately really? makes the decision over Sage. Sage can well, give Well, surely, if advice. I came to
3: you for some medical mm. advice, you wouldn't ask
2: the government what they thought, would you? um i would i'm obliged to a large degree to follow the government guidelines so if you were outside the uh you know if you were outside the criteria of getting the vaccine i'd have to refuse it even though i thought you might benefit from it
3: right well i mean that's a different argument really isn't it but if, if if the government says it's safe for you to get a vaccine uh you go and get one if the government say there's no need for you to go and get a vaccine then you don't need to go and get one. And that's what they said about pregnant women until, as I say, I think it was the chief midwife came out and said, we now recommend that you do it. So what
2: changed? Uh, evidence changed Um, so there's cumulative evidence over time and obviously with a new vaccine you're looking very carefully for different signals um, and the signals we're getting are very very strongly that pregnant women are more susceptible to serious effects from covid and the vaccine seems to be seems to not cause any harmful effects um, in pregnant women or in, more importantly, as importantly, in the babies that those pregnant women are carrying. I
3: haven't seen any evidence of pregnant women um, dying from uh, COVID, have you?
2: Yes, I have. Um, uh, And the ICUs have a very high proportion of pregnant women on them compared to the rest of the population. How
3: How many pregnant women would you say are in ICU units at the moment?
2: Uh, I don't know the figure, I'm afraid. Um well, how but do you it's know it's high, reason... Pardon? How do you know it's high, then? Uh, because I've read... I, I, I've, I've done my reading, right, but that's... I can't quote you the exact figure, well, if... and I wouldn't want to give you a wrong figure. No, I wouldn't want you to give me a wrong figure, either. I wouldn't give you a wrong impression, either. Um if i were to give you a uh, something from that i've uh, something from my memory it was roughly at one time about 20% of the icu covid cases in hospital uh, were unvaccinated pregnant women can and you tell me you how know, many covid cases are in the icus at the moment um i think there are about uh eight 1000 in the ICUs um at the moment that's in England um probably England and Wales they're usually quoted together uh-huh. and how what percentage is that of the space in the ICUs at 20 about 20% of COVID, of ICU beds at the moment are taken up with covid cases 20% well that's not very high is it uh, yes it is uh, well, for one fifth. For one illness, it's extraordinarily high. How um, I... when you're looking at when you're looking at the numbers of deaths from COVID as one illness compared to all the other illnesses that, that hospitals deal with day in, day out, it's an extraordinarily high percentage.
3: So you're telling me that twenty percent of that number, eight thousand, of those of those people in ICUs are pregnant women.
2: Uh, they were, uh, it was this, these are figures from three to four weeks ago. I'm not sure what the figures yes. are now. But that's a I very high number. Lower. That's a very large number of pregnant women though, isn't it? It's, uh, it, 20% it of
3: 8,000 is what?
2: 20% of 8,000 is a fifth. It's just under two, about 17, 18, 1700. So you're like telling like me that.
3: there's nearly 2000 pregnant women in the ICU units and around the country.
2: If, that, if my original figure was correct, well, but it as sounds I said, like I was awful, reluctant it to like a great story. Figure because I don't have it in front of but me. Well, all I'm saying, um, Nick, is that I'm happy to, yeah. pr- pr- to, to
3: promote these stories if they're true, but I don't know that that's true because I believe that if that was true, that would be a massive story, that nearly 2,000 pregnant women are so ill from COVID that they're in
2: danger of dying and they're in ICU units. That's a huge story. It is a huge story and it was published in various press um, in the last about three to four weeks ago. Also, um, well, are they all the still moves- in
3: there then or have they
2: all been released? Well, I don't know. I don't have access to all the hospitals and all the hospital Mm. sort of running data. What I was trying to get over is that pregnant women are at particularly high risk from being seriously ill and dying with COVID, and therefore it's extremely important that these women go and get vaccines as soon as possible. But part of the problem with with the messaging,
3: but Nick, part of the problem with the messaging is that we hear these uh, these warnings and we see people like yourself giving out these numbers, but you can't really back Mm -hmm. them up, and we're not really sure we can believe them.
2: That's the problem. If I'd known that you were going to ask me about pregnant women, I would have simply just checked the figures because I don't. Well, you you were the one that
3: introduced pregnant women into the conversation. You said it was important that they got vaccinated. So I asked you if you knew of any who were ill. You said you did. You said it
2: was as many as 2000. That's how we got here. Uh, Yes. Uh, And I'm trying to make a general point, but I don't have the exact figures without going and checking them. Uh, in order to give you the exact figures. But I can certainly say in general terms, what I've told you is completely true and and is quite alarming in the sense that um, so many pregnant women are still relying on the misinformation that the vaccines aren't safe. Well, then well, they are. you
3: may say that perhaps if you would be able to, if you were good enough uh, and you had the time, perhaps you could uh, let our producers know what the figures are once you've had a chance to look them up. Dr Nick Mann, thank you very much indeed. London GP, NHS, osteopath says there's nearly 2,000 pregnant women in the ICU units of this country suffering from COVID, i.e. they're sick enough to be in intensive care. I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. This is Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio
1: across the UK. Online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike
3: Gray. On talk radio, Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are going to save you the trouble uh, of having to listen to any more of that ridiculous nonsense. I have to say, plagues of locusts in uh, Florida underwater. Uh, don't forget, this is Mike Graham on Talk Radio with the Veterans Railcard. Just a single day's service in the Armed Forces qualifies you for the Veterans Railcard. Visit railcard.co.uk to apply. Now, a couple of stories that we need to touch upon before we get uh, to the end of the show, when Ian Collins is going to be here, of course. We're delighted to say we're joined by Giorgio Gilholy, journalist and former president uh, of the KCL Liberal libertarian society uh one particular story of course is that it's now uh, become a de rigueur uh, to be uh, giving out information on people who are supposedly um you know enemies of various different groups the trans lobby uh have been out in force getting rid of a uh, professor from down in uh, the university of sussex uh, and it's now uh, being brought to the attention of the rest of the world uh, because she's actually been forced out of a job as a result of supposedly some views that she had that they didn't like georgia very good uh, afternoon to you welcome
4: Hi, Mike. It's good to be
3: here. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. I'm not quite sure what to, what to ask you about first, really, because I was wondering if you watched the start of that Boris Johnson speech. I wonder what you made of it. I mean, it all seems. People are saying it sounds a bit like Spinal Tap or one of those kind of weird cults that uh, people go and join in uh, to be told terrible things are going to happen if they don't behave in a certain way, and they're all sitting there wearing masks. It's quite sinister to me.
4: Yeah, I did see a little bit of it um because I'm covering a bit of it today, but um. I think he compared at the beginning um, challenging the climate crisis to a James Bond film. Um, I haven't actually watched any James Bond films, I'm sorry to say, but I think, you know, I get the vibe of them. And I think it's a bit of a cringeworthy comparison. It really um, I was. I trying to appeal to popular culture, I don't know.
3: Yeah, but I mean, he's hardly I mean, hardly like to appeal to anybody younger than about 50, you know, because I'm not sure that many people under the age of 50 know what the hell he's talking about. But uh, anyway, we live in very strange times is all I know. Um, What about this story, though, about Professor Kathleen Stock, because she eventually was forced out of the University of Sussex in what I could only describe as very hateful um, scenarios which were created by by people there who were demonstrating on a daily basis about her.
4: Yeah, it's quite interesting, because I think the issue of free speech on campus and the trans issue being a big flashpoint in that, it has become a bit of a cliche or a meme to say, oh, you know, there's a crisis of free speech on campus, blah, blah, blah. But I think there are sort of tones to that. But it is clear that, you know, there's truth to this. And I think her, you know, resignation after being harassed by radical activists is quite chilling, you know, to be happening in a... I guess you could call us a somewhat liberal society. Um, you know, we have human rights enshrined in law, blah, blah, blah. Um, in general, most people are in favor of some degree of free speech. And obviously, you know, academic inquiry should be the height of that. But unfortunately, it's not. Um, and I think, you know, someone like her as well, she's, I believe, she has quite a progressive track record. Um, but she is not in favor of uh, gender self ID, um, which means, you know, anyone who says that they identify as another gender is automatically allowed to go in single sex spaces um, in the gender they now identify as I think most people have you know a variety of opinions on it um, I don't think she has particularly insane views I don't think she fostered forces a hatred of trans people I think those two topics are two different things and people are conflating them. Though I've also been told that apparently this this, uh, anti-turf society that were harassing her um, only has 16 members. So it's quite disappointing that people seem to be um, bowing down to this group when actually the people who are, you know, bothered to pay to be members or whatever. Yes. At a very minority.
3: But this seems to be the world we're living in now, Georgia, isn't it? Because, you know, the same goes for insulate Britain. You know, they've got this small number of people going to disrupt the M25 and everybody has to not be able to do anything about it. And I mean, a lot of those people who were demonstrating in the University of Sussex as well were covering their faces up so they couldn't be identified, which seems to me to be entirely uh, the antithesis of what they're demanding. But the thing for me that, that is so irritating about this story is that As you say, she hasn't got particularly, you know, dramatically, you know, revolutionary views. It's just that people don't agree with her. And, you know, surely that's the lifeblood, certainly of what I do, should be the lifeblood of of any university where people are supposed to be challenging each other intellectually.
4: Yeah, I mean, I just think in general, academia um, is quite a toxic environment. I think that there are more people than we think who have moderate views and more stu- um, you know, more faculty who have moderate views than we think, and more students who have moderate views than we would think from obviously the media coverage. But the problem is that, you know, if you have three people who who espouse these sort of radical views, sometimes inciting violence as, as we've seen at Sussex, and everyone else is sort of scared to challenge them, um, then you know, what's the point in talking about the silent majority? Um, they need to be vocal, otherwise these things sort of become normality and really we're already in that situation where this is normal this isn't the first case of this kind of thing happening and you know i know the government has their free speech bill which people have a variety of uh, reactions to um they also presented that in the queen's speech earlier this year but i think whatever you do in terms of the law um this is clearly a grassroots cultural issue because these ideas have filtered down from academia they're now common you know uh, to be seen on social media and popular culture um even though like i said there are more people who have more moderate moderate views um than we think probably the majority of people but if these aren't the people who sort of uh i guess directing the narrative um or who are not going to speak up because i don't know they have jobs um like kathleen stock did have a job right. or they have families and things to do you know I don't know what situation we're going to be in, say, five, ten right. years time. And imagine it being better. Whatever the government thinks that they can do, um, you can't just change, you know, people's beliefs by saying, "Okay, we're going to protect free speech on the campus," because those people will still harbour. Um, some of those people still harbour the view that this uh, professor deserves violence for her views. Yes, quite. Which is obviously ridiculous.
3: Well, the story today is that Lord Wharton, who's chairman of the Office for Students, says that scholars must be able to put forward views without fear. And he's saying that there's going to be new legislation coming in, uh, which will strengthen uh, powers to address transgressions. So I don't quite know what he means by that, but I do know that the online safety bill, uh, is all part of this kind of thing as well, because apparently uh, there's a possibility that people online who troll, and I know some of her um, enemies, if you like, would have been uh, coming under this category. Um, if they troll and cause psychological harm as a result of things that they're saying to people, uh, they could face two years in prison. Now, normally a free speech advocate would say, well, that's probably not the right way to go. But unfortunately, we've reached this terribly toxic place, haven't we, where people are awful to one another on social media.
4: Yeah I think when it comes to bills like this you have to look at the bigger picture so I think that if people are making direct threats um, which is already you know illegal um, they definitely should face consequences but I think it's a mistake to um, broaden that definition and to put you know regular people at risk for making you know jokes or sort of criticizing people online Sort of you know the definition as well of psychological harm how can that be appropriate appropriately evaluated how can we say someone has the you know criminal intent um but i think this kind of reaction to instantly think there must be a legal solution to this is sort of a consequence of you know the post-war consensus of if there's an issue the state must Mm. solve it and you know, there is no sort of uh, other way to approach it, which I think is quite dangerous. Yes,
3: no, I agree with you, because I think it could actually backfire, because what they're apparently going to do with this proposed law change is shift the focus onto the harmful effect of a message rather than if it contains indecent or grossly offensive content. Now, you could say anything is harmful to you. Um, I could say anything is harmful to me. You know, I could send a message to somebody and they could declare it to be harmful and then I get arrested. I don't think that's a world we want to live in, is it?
4: yeah absolutely I mean if someone were to let's say you know you tweet this interview out and someone says gosh isn't that young girl annoying which people sometimes do <laughs> <laughs> um, and I could you know burst into tears or I don't know suffer depression or something like that because of those uh, you know replies to me um but does that mean that someone else is a criminal for saying those things for criticizing me no they're not criminal um but in future maybe they could be um, because we're sort of broadening these definitions and it's just incredibly vague and dangerous and counterproductive because let's say, you know, there are actual radical, you know, far-right people, far-left people online and in real life, um, you know, telling them to delete their Twitter account and finding them is not actually going to change their beliefs. It's actually going to make them think that the so-called establishment or big tech or whatever, and the government is against them and it will actually embolden them if they truly do hold, you know, radical beliefs.
3: Well, that's right. And as far as um, Kathleen Stock goes, I mean, you can't really imagine another seat of learning in this day and age at the moment anyway, under the current sort of conditions. Can't imagine another university offering her a job, can you?
4: No, I think um, because she's spoken out a lot and she has been brave in this situation, I think, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if she got a job sort of in political commentary or maybe the think tank, but if she spent, you know, her whole life building this academic career, um, that's probably not where she actually wanted to be. She probably wants to be, you know, teaching and doing uh, research in a university. So um, I hope, you know, she'll find something else to sort of support her and, um, you know, I guess that fulfills her in life as well as as paying her bills. But um, I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if another university didn't offer a job in the UK because she attracts this controversy. And we know that, you know, because she's sort of been all over the, the press um, with this uh, issue, wherever she goes now in the UK, there's going to be protests. Um, so I can't see this going away if she were to just, you know, move to no. another university. And then, of course, the other... didn't even offer her a job.
3: Yeah, and the terribly dangerous aspect of, of, of the sort of collateral damage to all of this is that people who think they may agree with her, will now probably not say it because they'll be scared of losing their jobs.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm someone who is generally quite open with my beliefs. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a political journalist, so I kind of have to be. Um, but, you know, there were times when I as a student or in certain social, uh, you know, meetings or whatever, you just feel like these pe- when you hear what they're saying, sometimes people can be, you can tell they're so radical that, okay, is it even worth it to have this discussion right now? Because they're not going to change their mind just from me disagreeing with them. Um, But I think in general, we obviously do need to permit these conversations. Obviously platforms like Talk Radio do, other media outlets do, people do debate this, you know, on Twitter and in real life. But I think in general, um, if you can feel outnumbered, you're less likely to speak out. Especially as, you know, a person just arriving at university, you know, you want to make friends you don't want to be seen to be out of place um so unfortunately that happens
3: yeah no this is the way of, of things now though isn't it i mean just watching this climate change conference you know the cop 26 you know if you are in any way um critical of what they're doing if you refuse to actually acknowledge the fact that you know flying on air force one with 85 cars Uh, is not slightly hypocritical. You know, if you don't see all these private jets flying in uh, and using up more carbon than Scotland does in an entire year, if you don't see the ridiculousness of that, uh, you know, um, you're you're a good person because, you know, you can't ask that question. You can't challenge them on that because they must meet to make this incredibly historic, ridiculous, you know, pledge, which in the end will mean absolutely nothing. But everyone's almost like walking zombie-like through... Um, modern day life as though they don't notice any of this stuff and that they're too frightened to pretend actually that it's rubbish.
4: Yeah, I think obviously it sort of depends on the circles you're right? in. If you're on, you know, an average street in like a town outside of London or wherever and you have these conversations, most people, you know, will be like, okay, whatever, this is a load of rubbish, you know. Um, but if you're among people who are of a more liberal bent, maybe more upper middle class at a university, wherever, um, it can be a little bit awkward to sort of say those things depending on if you know their views or not. Um, sometimes they can make their views quite clear, obviously, as everyone's entitled to. Um but yeah, when it comes to I suppose talking about some of the worst aspects of things like cop, yeah, um, I think uh. I have seen a lot of people criticizing it hard.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, I just despair. But listen, um, Georgia, thank you very much indeed. Very important matters to be discussed. Georgia Holy, the uh, journalist, former president of the KCL Libertarian Society.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part?